It has uh, been my pleasure and opportunity to, to conduct diabetes management workshops and seminars uh, now going on 20 years. Uh, this began in Guam when, while I was a medical missionary with the Guam SDA Clinic and Wellness Center. And around 1995, we had the privilege of convincing a doctor from California, Dr. Charles Brinegar, who had been the director of the Diabetes Treatment Center at Loma Linda University for many, many years, to come as a medical missionary to Guam. And I, I remember I asked him once, I said, uh, Dr. Brinegar, what what motivated you to become a medical missionary and come to Guam? And you know what he told me? He said, because somebody asked me. And it made me realize that we should never underestimate the power of simply asking people for help. He had been in Loma Linda very, very comfortably for decades. And then one day, somebody called him up and said, hey, would you be interested in coming to Guam as a medical missionary? And he came. So don't ever hesitate in asking people uh, to get involved in programs because many times they will come and they're waiting simply to be asked. A cousin of mine who had left the church uh, and then after many, many years, came back into the church and now is a minister in the church. Recalls that he went for many, many years without being asked if he wanted to come to church. And he says, you know, I would have come if somebody would have just asked me. So sometimes we second-guess ourselves and second-guess other individuals. And uh, we need to be more bold. Well, uh, at that time, uh, we wanted to put together a strong diabetes management program. All he did was see patients with diabetes. That's, that was his entire practice. And so we developed a comprehensive lifestyle medicine program that focused on diabetes. So I had an opportunity to learn much from him. And uh, keeping up with the literature is, boy, that's a challenge in any field. But in, in diabetes, there's so much information available to us in the area of diabetes, pre-diabetes, hypoglycemia, and all those conditions are very open to management. The complications that arise from these conditions are entirely avoidable. And many times people with, with type 2 diabetes can actually reverse that condition and in the majority of cases, the vast majority of cases, individuals with pre-diabetes should be able to reverse those as well. But the key is that most people don't know it. And you'll see from statistics that after the age of 40, you're more likely to have prediabetes or diabetes than not have prediabetes or diabetes. 
In other words, if you're 40 or over and you don't have prediabetes or diabetes, you are in the distinct minority of individuals. Once again, the problem is that most people who have prediabetes in particular have no idea that they have it. Just last week, I was working with uh, a patient in her early 50s who appeared to be very healthy and had actually come in to see me for other health concerns. There was no concern about heart disease or diabetes or prediabetes or high blood pressure. It was none of those concerns. It was just some other concerns that she had. She was having headaches and... Um, and so as we talked, I became, became a little bit concerned that she might have problems with low blood sugar. Because low blood sugars depress the immune system. Low blood sugars actually uh, are associated with weakened adrenal glands, uh, which then leads to increased risk of disease, of autoimmunity, and we feel really bad when we have low blood sugars. It's bad for the brain. And so I suggested that we do a glucose tolerance test, which we'll look at in a little bit. And so where she would come into the laboratory, have blood drawn initially, and then after the fasting blood test, would drink a sweetened drink. It's about twice as sweet as a regular soda. Uh, about 75 grams of pure glucose that's carbonated and so it doesn't taste too bad, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it takes a little effort to drink that down. And then one hour later, we check the sugar, the blood sugar again, two hours, three hours, and four hours. I was expecting to see some potential low blood sugars, and we found them. Dramatic drop in blood sugars at three and four hours, which was a key problem. But what I hadn't expected to see was her blood sugars above 200 at the one hour mark, which places her in advanced pre-diabetes. Now that, the one hour blood sugar is not diagnostic. In other words, many times in medicine, they don't even measure the one hour blood sugar because it's not diagnostic. You know, the, the, the doctors and researchers who kind of came up with the rules of how do you diagnose the problem did not include the one hour. They just looked fasting and at two hours. But in doing so, they made a decision that greatly weakened the power of educating their patients. Because the most sensitive blood test for blood sugars is at one hour after consuming a food. One hour. And I have many people that have patients who have a completely normal blood sugar before they eat, completely normal, I should say healthy, because normal is not the same thing as healthy. Remember, I just got done saying that, that the majority of people 40 and over have prediabetes or diabetes. So, in a statistical sense, that's normal. It's normal to have prediabetes and diabetes. It's average. It's not healthy, but it's normal. It's expected, statistically. So it, 
uh, a, at two hours, many people have completely optimal blood sugars before and at two hours. But the one hour can be sky high, can be at 200 or higher. And in her case, even though she didn't have any of the other signs or indications of a metabolic problem, we caught that. But we caught that early because she was willing to be evaluated. She was willing to take a risk and be open to criticism, if you will. That's really what it is. You're, being, you're opening yourself to criticism. Constructive criticism. <laughs> but, but whenever we do these blood tests, whenever we do any, any medical evaluation, we're essentially experiencing a close evaluation, a close criticism of what's going on, right? In other words, we want that criticism. We want to know what's wrong. We want to know what's right. So it's very similar in our spiritual lives. As long as we're open to criticism. When's the last time you've asked somebody, hey, you know, evaluate me. <laughs> How am I doing? Okay, is there anything I can do better? Is, you know, um, we don't tend to do that naturally. Uh, but done properly, especially with a close friend, especially with a spouse, uh, with somebody that you spend time with. Being willing to be constructively criticized can be very valuable, a learning experience for us. And so this, this testing phase that she went through made her aware of something she had no idea was going on. But as we looked at the data, we started putting the pieces together and recognizing that one of the driving factors in migraine headaches actually is an abnormal blood sugar metabolism. When's the last time you read anything about that? Oh, probably 20 years ago now. I was, I was seeing patients in Sun City, California, once a week with Dr. Brenniger. That's where we first met. It was part of the Loma Linda Faculty Medical Group extended offices. And uh, while there, I had, um, I had a neurologist from Europe come spend about a week with me. She was working on a second doctoral degree at the School of Public Health at Loma Linda and wanted to just spend some time shadowing me. And uh, so I, I, I encouraged it and I had a wonderful time dialoguing with her because being a neurologist, I was interested in what she could teach me as well. But something interesting happened on the days that she was there. I would work with patients who had diabetes or gout or high cholesterol or high blood pressure and go through a comprehensive lifestyle nutritional medicine strategy so that they could accomplish their goals. And as they would come back after a month or two of, of following these strategies, uh, they would see, we'd do before and after testing, right? We'd 
criticize them, if you will, <laughs> before and after, and they could see, wow, you know, when I actually followed this plan, my cholesterol dropped 50 points, my blood pressure dramatically improved, my blood sugars uh, uh, dropped uh, substantially, everything was getting better. And this one particular day, I was, I was kind of bragging on these patients a little bit. So, wow, look at, look at your cholesterol, look at your blood sugar, look at your uric acid and your gout's no longer there. And, and four of the patients that I was kind of bragging on, four of them that very day that I was working with this neurologist said, we're, we're kind of dismissing all that as, as if it was unimportant. I would say like, aren't you excited about this? I mean, I'm excited about what's happening to you, aren't you? He says, well, yeah, no, no, this is good, but, but what I'm really happy about is that I'm not having those headaches anymore. And at the time, I didn't get it, you know, because I, I kind of knew that you do one thing right, everything tends to work better, but I didn't get it. But then my friend, Dr. Susanna Bick, as a neurologist, she was intrigued. She says, whoa. I've never seen this before. They're just changing their diet and their headaches are going away? What's going on? That led her to develop her doctoral research project on the relationship between diet, blood sugars, insulin production in the body, and headaches. And ended up publishing her uh, in the medical journal Hypothesis, showing that relationship. So when our blood sugars are out of balance and our blood sugars shoot up after a starchy meal, now our pancreas has to produce lots of insulin to compensate for that high blood sugar. Because that excess insulin now helps store the sugar from the bloodstream into the cells, the muscle or the liver cells where they're supposed to be. But when we produce that extra insulin, not only does it help us store the sugar, but that extra insulin has a downside. Extra insulin is one of the main causes of headaches in that setting. Extra insulin is one of the main causes of high blood pressure. Up to 80% of all what we call essential hypertension, essential meaning we're not really sure what causes it, but, but we're starting to better understand it because up to 80% of average everyday high blood pressure is actually caused by what we know as insulin resistance, where the body then has to make extra insulin to compensate for the resistance that the muscle and the liver cells have created against insulin. That extra insulin not only increases blood pressure, but it also drives breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, and it's now considered to be the single most important risk factor for heart disease. Dr. David Eddy, a a MD, PhD researcher at Duke University, now at Stanford University, published a very intriguing study 
looking at what he calls the Archimedes mathematical model on reversing illness. And what he did is he put into the supercomputer as many data points as he could, essentially creating artificial life in the computer. And he, he showed that if you could, if you could control, if you could first diagnose and then effectively manage insulin resistance, which is what we're going to be talking about today, this abnormal metabolism of high, mildly elevated blood sugars, mildly elevated blood pressure, mild excess weight in the, in the midsection, mildly elevated blood fats, the triglycerides, low good cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, excuse me, the HDL cholesterol being a little low. Any three out of those five risk factors is insulin resistance. And he showed that if you could control that and get it diagnosed and managed starting in the 20s, you could prevent over 43% of all cardiovascular death. Now, when's the last time you went to the doctor for physical and the doctor says, well, we evaluate you for insulin resistance? Now, that is starting to happen more. It's also called metabolic syndrome. But what are the traditional risk factors that are typically focused on? Cholesterol, blood pressure, properly so. But the majority of the cardiovascular risk isn't coming from that. It's coming from this imbalance of blood sugars and insulin. That's what's actually driving most of the risk. And so that's why we want to spend some time today and tomorrow looking at this whole topic, how to evaluate, prevent, and reverse diabetes, prediabetes, but doing it naturally. How do we do it? There was a, a study conducted with a lot of the research actually being done in Ohio at, at, um, at the Ohio State University, looking at the value of metformin, which is widely considered to be the very best medication for diabetes and even managing prediabetes or infertility. Do you know that the main cause of infertility is insulin resistance? It's just imbalance between blood sugars and insulin. That by far the main cause of infertility. I've had, I've had patients referred by gynecologists while in Guam, their gynecologist referred them to our wellness center and we had a joint program, a joint fertility program, where we would evaluate them for blood sugar imbalance by doing glucose tolerance testing, measuring their insulin levels, fixing that, and many times they just get pregnant just by doing that, just by treating that naturally. Right? And, and yet they were thinking, I'm going to have to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on other testing and, and strategies that many times are not successful. Why? Because we forgot to actually look at the main cause of the problem, which is a metabolic imbalance. And until we fix the metabolic imbalance, we could be doing all kinds of extraordinary medical testing and measures 
for not. So as we're, as we're looking for natural strategies, it's, it's important to look at the most recent uh, literature on that. Now, this is, this is all part of the series that we've been doing on reengineering genetic risk. Uh, and so let's start by answering the question, well, what is diabetes? Now, that might seem to be an interesting question because most people would define diabetes as what? Well, it's just high blood sugar. But see, that's actually not correct because there are many stages of high blood sugar that don't quite meet the criteria for diabetes. And I'll show you here in a, in a bit that, that there's actually, the way we define it or establish is five stages of high blood sugar. Stage five is the beginning of diabetes. In other words, there's, there's four other stages of high blood sugar that do not meet the full criteria for diabetes. So diabetes is not the same thing as high blood sugar. Diabetes is a blood sugar that's so high that it will cause serious complication unless managed and brought under control. This is really important for us to understand. Remember the quote that I mentioned earlier, that the health message the message that John the Baptist was given to proclaim was designed to what? Startle the people from their lethargy. Wake them up that this is serious. So many times when somebody's first diagnosed with diabetes, at first it, they go through a, a time of denial, which is natural. Nobody wants to be diagnosed with diabetes. Uh, but many times, if it's familial, that is, if it's in the family, if it's been a part of their lives where mom or dad or auntie or uncle or grandparents have had diabetes, it's kind of like an expected eventuality. Who am I to say it's not going to happen to me? I mean, I have so many relatives with this problem. It's, it's bound to catch up with me sometime. And besides, it's genetic, right? That, that's the perspective. And so it's critical to understand that by the time somebody's diagnosed with diabetes, most people have already had diabetes for 10 to 15 years. They just didn't know it. It wasn't caught soon enough. The medical testing that we've done up until now has not been adequate to catch it early. It was just a few years ago, 1997, diabetes wasn't even diagnosed until somebody's blood sugar was 140 before breakfast. Now that cutoff has dropped down to 126. The reason being that researchers a little over 10 years ago, recognized finally that by the time somebody has a blood sugar of 140 or higher, they have already had complications for years. Now, what's the whole purpose of diagnosing a condition? 
to prevent further complications and hopefully to establish a protocol to cure that condition or to minimize the problems associated with that condition. That's the whole purpose of diagnosing any condition, so that we can do something about it. And so the problem with diabetes was that by the time it was diagnosed, it had already caused all its comp many of its complications, and then it wasn't being managed very well after that. So researchers recognized that once that fasting blood sugar creeps up to about 120, 125, the rate of complications, right, organ damage, shot way up. And so they said, we at least have to define diabetes at the point where the risk of disease starts, uh, of complications starts skyrocketing, right? A at minimum, we should say that that's the beginning of diabetes. But here's the point, is that, that the pathology, the damage, starts way before even that new, more sensitive definition of diabetes. In other words, we should never wait until we're diagnosed with diabetes, even under the new criteria, before we start doing something about it. That's the value of the new term, pre-diabetes. It helps us better appreciate what we can do now to fully prevent diabetes from ever happening fully prevent any of the complications from happening, but also recognizing that we're ready at substantial risk for a heart attack or a stroke, even before the diabetes comes. In your handout, there is a, there is a slide that shows the stages of high blood sugar. And and you will see here that the one hour blood sugar is more likely to be elevated at any of those stages, right? And so it's the most sensitive way to check whether or not we have a blood sugar problem. While in Guam, I had the opportunity to, to teach a class at the University of Guam on wellness. And so I used it as my opportunity to share with those college students the principles that we're learning today. And one of the first things I, would, I did at the beginning of every, of every um, class that I taught is I would, I would have them, give them instructions to go home and the next class period to bring with them their favorite drink, whether it's a Pepsi or Coke or Sprite or orange juice or apple juice, their favorite drink. It has to be a sugar-containing drink. And then some um, cookies, snacks, crackers, whatever they would normally eat, something that was mainly sugary, carbohydrate-rich. That next class period, when they brought that in, they were getting points for this, so they had to do it. <laughs> they, we checked their blood sugars before. So it, it, had been, it had been about four hours or so since they'd eaten, so their blood sugars are now stable, similar to a fasting state. 
And then I'd have them consume that drink, whether it was a Pepsi or orange juice, and then have some candies or sugary snacks, cookies. 45 minutes to an hour later, we'd check their blood sugar again with a finger stick. Do you know that even in college students, many of those college students would have a significantly elevated blood sugar. Why? Because it's the most sensitive time to check it. And so it's catching the tendency that the majority of us have towards abnormal blood sugars, even at that young age. One young man who was about, oh, he was about 70 pounds overweight. I didn't know it at the time. I mean, he's taking a health and fitness class. That was a mandatory class for, for, to graduate at the university. Everybody had to take that class. So he's 70 pounds overweight. He smoked two to three packs of cigarettes a day. Uh, drank a lot of beer. That was the reason he gained so much weight. And, uh, but you know, he was really motivated to get through school and, and to get on with his life. And, and so he wanted to get a good grade in that class and he took that test. His fasting blood sugar was normal, typical, inconsequential. But his one hour blood sugar was 350. Do you think he was startled? He was startled. You think he was woken up from his lethargy? Absolutely. I still remember him coming to me and said, Dr. Youngberg, I, look, look at this. And I said, well, let's go ahead and check you again in one hour. He was above 200 at one hour. And you look at that sheet. What is it when your blood sugar is, two, is above 200 at the two-hour mark? two hours after any food of any kind, that's fully diabetic, that's stage five. Do you think he was motivated? Do you think that, his, that he was primarily just interested in getting a good grade and graduating? All of a sudden, he had a whole new sense of motivation. He recognized that he was at risk and now it was all about, doctor, what can I do to get well? And so I encouraged him to, uh, to go to see his primary doctor. And he said, I don't have a primary doctor. And so I said, next class period, I'm going to bring you a laboratory slip. And we're going to do the full comprehensive test on you. We did that. No question about it. He had full-blown diabetes. He later said, she says, you know, my, my uncle Mike he had diabetes so bad that he's, he's lost one leg and is about ready to lose another leg. My grandfather went blind because of diabetes. But see, I never thought it would happen to me. I mean, that was just my uncle and my grandfather. But all of a sudden now, he's able to equate what was happening with his family history and what might happen to him if he doesn't pay attention to the gift that he was given, that knowledge of where his risk lay. So that's the value of, of testing. There was a, a researcher in Southern California about 10 years ago who 
worked for Kaiser Permanente, a large HMO. And, and they had been tasked for making sure that they understood the risk of the population that they were insuring. Because we may not realize it, but an insurance company and health maintenance organizations are required by law to have enough funds in reserve to meet the anticipated medical needs of their population. So that's why many of them have hospitals and multiple clinics, and they have to have enough money to meet all the medical needs that would be anticipated in that population. So why would they want to know how many diabetic individuals they have in their patient population? Well, that's what they were wanting to figure out. Do we need to have more funds in reserve for individuals with diabetes than individuals who don't? And so they, they looked at their research, and they keep meticulous research on all patients, and they asked the question, what would, be, what would be the actual risk of a patient who had developed diabetes after the age of 45 and how that impact risk of heart disease? And so if you look at the, at the graph there, you see that those individuals who'd been diagnosed with diabetes after age 45 were three times more likely to have a stroke and four times more likely to have a heart attack than the same age individuals that had otherwise the same risk factors but no diabetes. Does, does Kaiser as an HMO want to know that? They're four times more likely to have a heart attack and, and cost the health system $100,000 to $200,000 because of that heart attack or stroke. Real critical. But that was just the beginning of their understanding of this problem. Uh, one of the younger researchers says, yeah, but wait a minute. We've been focused on traditional way of understanding diabetes that occurs in middle age and beyond. What about the impact if the diabetes is actually diagnosed before age 45? Now, this was published in the top medical journal dealing with diabetes called Diabetes Care. And take a look at that graph. If they had been diagnosed prior to age 45, their risk of a heart attack now went up 14 times. But the risk of a stroke went 30 times higher. Now, when I first presented this at a medical conference some years ago, I had doctors coming up to me and going like, no, 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 no. You, you, you missed a decimal point there somewhere. There's no way that that could be correct. And I said, go look it up. I had to look it up too. It was, it's hard to believe. And, they, and with modern technology, by, within 10 minutes, they looked it up and, and they were like dumbfounded. said, I have not been playing, paying close enough attention to this risk factor that undiagnosed diabetes is creating a disease burden that's 30 times greater now than otherwise. Now, let's put this into perspective. Most of the time when we look at medical studies, we're showing a 30% increased risk, and we're going like, wow, 
you know, if, if you do this, you're 30% more likely to get this disease. And we're going like, wow, that's 30%. We're talking 3,000% in this study. So this, this very clearly points out that we need to start paying attention to whether or not we are at risk personally. Now, what's the likelihood that you or I are at risk personally with blood sugar imbalances? Greater than 50%. But have you been properly evaluated for it so that you know? So the, if our goal is to prevent disease, to help reverse the potential complications of disease, the first thing that we need to do right is make sure that we are taking the opportunity to properly evaluate our risk right now. And, and unfortunately, in medicine, we don't do that very well. What do we typically do when we have a physical? Very important. I just had a physical two days ago. Okay, it's very important to have those done. But the tests that are ordered with a physical include a fasting blood test, right? Which is good. Standardizes everything. But if you go back to, if you go back to the five stages of high blood sugar, a fasting blood sugar to be deemed problematic, even pre-diabetic, has to be 100 or higher. But if we don't do the stress test, you know, put the system under a little stress and didn't measure the response, we're, we're not likely to catch the problem. And the best stress test for this condition is a sugar stress test, where you, you actually have somebody eat some sugar or drink some sugar and then test an hour later, 45 minutes to an hour later. So when I go out in uh, church-led health fairs and we're checking blood sugars and people say, oh, no, I just ate. So, you know, they're used to having to do their blood work fasting. But actually, that's a very insensitive way to do the test. It's, an, it's important to standardize, like testing cholesterol and triglycerides. It's important to do it fasting. But in terms of the blood sugar part of that test, it's not going to pick up the problem for most people. That's why we need to look at stage one and stage two elevations of blood sugar, because they give us the clues. But not always. I have a lot of people who come in with completely optimal pre-meal blood sugars, completely, 70 to 85, right where you want it to be. But one hour later, the blood sugars are 160, 180, 200, or above. A researcher in Italy just last year did a study showing that if your one-hour blood sugar, one hour after consuming any meal or drink, is above 155, that is an independent risk factor for heart disease. And not just an independent risk factor, 
But according to other studies, it is actually giving us insight as to the most important risk factor, because that's what's driving the insulin resistance, which simply means that the body is not, the cells of the liver and the muscles are not processing sugar very well. Now, why would they not do that? Why would the muscles not process sugar? Why would the muscle say, we're not going to let insulin store any more sugar? It, it's a real simple answer, by the way. So you'll kick yourselves when you hear it. Let me ask it another way. What would it take for the muscle to say, oh, I want more sugar? Ah, thank you. Exercise. So when the muscle is not exercised enough, its stores of sugar are glutted doesn't, it doesn't want any more sugar. It doesn't need any more sugar. So the muscle says, close the doors. And the muscle becomes insensitive or resistant to insulin. But the pancreas is responsible for controlling blood sugars. And so now as the pancreas monitors the blood sugar and sees the sugar going up and up and up after the meal, the pancreas says, i got to make more insulin. I can't allow the sugar to get too high. Why? Because high sugar sticks to, to, to organs and tissues in the body and causes damage. It causes advanced glycolytic end products that literally sugarcoat the body and, and glycosylate or glaze the cells and damage them, preventing them from working the way God designed them to work. So in order to protect against this glazing of sugar to cells in the body, the pancreas makes extra insulin. That forces the blood sugar down, but what's the trade-off? I mentioned it earlier. High insulin does what? It, it increases the blood pressure in people sensitive. It increases the risk of cancer dramatically. It increases the risk of weight gain. It increases the loss of minerals. It does everything bad. It turns on the bad genes and turns off the good genes. It causes inflammation. <laughs> the list is, it just goes on. It doesn't stop. So we need to pay attention to those, to those issues. So what are the underlying causes of diabetes then? Okay. Number one, we've talked about insulin resistance. We've, we've explained that, that that resistance is critical, we, that we reverse it. So if the muscles are resistant, how do we reverse that? We start exercising. Now, let me, let me give you a couple of key strategies that come directly out of the spirit of prophecy that for whatever reason, haven't really made the mainstream yet in diabetes or prediabetes management. Every reasonable book or article that talks about controlling blood sugars talks about the value of exercise, rightly so. Really, we should all exercise at least half an hour a day anyways, right? Doesn't have to be hard. Walking, just walking briskly is wonderful exercise, has all kinds of benefits to the body, and we know from studies that have been conducted now for decades that if you walk or exercise 30 minutes on most days of the week, that in itself will lower your risk of heart disease by 50%. Boom. 
very dramatic. A lot of that relates to controlling blood sugar. But is there a special time for exercise? Is there a special time for rest? I think we all could argue that there are certain times that are especially suited to rest. When the sun goes down, remember the hours, the hours of sleep before midnight are worth twice as much as the hours of sleep after midnight. I remember, I remember uh, reading that and find, finding that interesting, but I was almost a little embarrassed to mention that to any of my friends. Because they look at me and go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're, you've been reading Ellen White again, right? You know, like, you know, that, that's not scientific. How could that be scientific? I mean, minus, as long as you sleep enough, that should be plenty good. Until the research started coming out recently showing that, that getting, getting good sleep early in the evening after the sun goes down, dramatically increases the rise of melatonin in the brain. The pineal gland that produces melatonin is stimulated to do that when we're outside in the bright light. It actually activates the process so that when we are in complete darkness that next night, the pineal gland is able to release tremendous amounts of melatonin, which is the fix it and rejuvenate hormone, which is, which is the neurotransmitter hormone that dramatically protects against cancer. It's a powerful antioxidant and helps restore the body, heal the body as needed. So we're missing that opportunity to, and sleeping in the hours before midnight, we're not gonna heal as well. Likewise, so there's a chronicity, a, a chronobiologic value of timing. There's a timing to when we eat. There's a timing to when we sleep. But there's also timing related to exercise. And one of those timings is right after we eat which is counterintuitive because how many of us grew up hearing, stop exercising right after you eat, you're gonna get a cramp, <laughs> okay? You're not gonna digest your food properly. But Ellen White tells us that if we exercise lightly to moderately right after a meal, it actually improves digestion. And research now has shown that when we exercise after a meal, that increases the absorption of magnesium, which, by the way, is a key nutrient related to both heart disease and diabetes and prediabetes. It's a key nutrient that's related to high blood pressure. So when we have enough magnesium, blood pressure tends to normalize. Even when we have high cholesterol, if we have optimal levels of magnesium, that cholesterol can't form plaque. It doesn't, it doesn't cause damage to the artery wall in forming plaque. The magnesium is a wonderful neutralizing mineral. Where are we going to get the magnesium? Not if we're eating processed meats and, and refined grains. 
Magnesium comes only from whole plant, unrefined, unprocessed plant foods. So um, light exercise after meals can be extremely beneficial in kind of keeping us awake, uh, getting more blood and oxygen and nutrients to the brain, helping to relieve congestion in the digestive organs. And that's all was laid out very nicely many, many decades ago, way before any research could suggest that that was scientific. Um, I had a patient who walked in for the first time to a diabetes management a seminar that I was doing. And there was about 10, 15 people in a small classroom setting around a boardroom table. And he walked in and he actually had a walker and it took him about oh, three minutes or so to get around to the other side of the table and sit down. And right at that time I was talking about exercising after meals. And, and I explained at that point that every minute that you exercise right after a meal has the potential to lower your blood sugars anywhere from one to three points. So if your blood sugars one hour after a meal are about 90 points too high consistently. And you exercise for 10 minutes after that meal, how much could you expect to lower your blood sugars? Anywhere from 10 to 30 points. If it's 90 points too high, probably a 30 point drop, three points for every minute exercise. If you exercise 30 minutes after that meal, you could completely neutralize that rise after the meal. Um, so as I was discussing that, I was watching him walking with his walker slow around the table. And I, I, I further discussed with them, you know, what would happen if they actually did that after every meal? And I was thinking, you know, this, this guy's not going to do that. He can hardly get around the table. So I kind of wrote him off. About uh, three weeks later, <clears throat> I, I was seeing him in my office. And I looked at his numbers, and his blood sugars had gone from being above 300 to being completely in, in, in the well-managed uh, range under 110 before meals. So I looked at him and I said, what did you do? And he looked at me incredulously and said like, what do you mean? I've been coming to your seminars every week. I just did what you told me to do. I said, yeah, but what actually specifically did you do? He says, well, I, you know, the first thing I heard come out of your mouth was how important it was to exercise after meals. And so he said, I am committed to reversing this because I am afraid that this is going to destroy my health, and if I destroy my health, it's going to destroy my family. So, and so, and so I said, so what did you do? And he said, well, I decided I was going to exercise 30 minutes after every meal. Now, I'd never said that. I never, because that's a lot of exercise. You 
You usually want to gradually build into exercise. And, and so he said, you know, I, I, I've been in an accident recently. I couldn't really exercise much. So I just took my walker and I'd walk for, you know, 30, 40 seconds and then, and then stop and then lift my arms up a little bit, you know, and then walk a little bit more. Okay, and then stop, lift my arms up a little bit. And it says, I'd, I'd do what I could for about half an hour after every meal. Man, was I convicted that day. He says, wow, you know, the, he, he just developed, he came up with a plan that was reasonable to him. And he essentially reversed his diabetes, even though it had been way out of control when it was first diagnosed by his family doctor. Other, other uh, factors associated with diabetes include what we call pancreatic dysfunction. Now, what would happen if somebody who really wasn't in great shape decided, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run a 10K tomorrow? Okay? And they, they hadn't jogged or even walked for many, many months. That would be a real burden on the body, right? Okay. What happens if they do it again next week? And the next week? And the next week? If, we, if we're constantly stressing the body above and beyond what we are really capable, the body begins to break down. And in many cases... The, especially the forms, the type 2 diabetes that is diagnosed later on in age, when there's been a problem already ongoing for decades. But what happens is that after decades of the pancreas having to make 2 to 20 times more insulin than it should have to, right? Because sugars are high, so what's the pancreas going to do? I'm just going to make more insulin. And they're going to try to compensate, and that pancreas is so hardy, so well designed by God, that it can, it can crank out the insulin for literally decades at much higher levels than it should have to produce. With all those complications that I've already described, the, causing the high blood pressure, hypertension, causing the prostate problems, the, the uh, breast cancer, the colon cancer, and heart disease, and so forth causing all those problems along the way. But after a while, the pancreas goes, I just can't do it anymore. And it takes a time out. It literally, we call it pancreatic fatigue. That's what we used to think when, when we called something that type 2 diabetes, we would say, well, this person has diabetes because their pancreas can't make enough insulin. That's only true after 20, 30 years of, of working overtime until it can no longer do that anymore, and then its insulin production drops off. The main problem with diabetes isn't pancreatic fatigue. The main problem is that the cells of the body, the muscles and the liver cells are resistant to insulin. So now the pancreas has to make more insulin. All that can be reversed if we understand what the body needs. 
the foods that we've been talking about. The plant-based foods lower inflammation and control insulin. When we brought people into our programs at our clinic, we would always test their insulin level as well, not just their blood sugar, but we'd actually measure their insulin level. And by doing so, we were able to do before and after testing. Two weeks after being on a daily exercise program and eating a plant-based diet, we'd recheck their lab work, including their insulin level. And you know what we found? That the insulin level would drop by 50% in just two weeks. See, that's a good thing. See, traditionally we thought, well, you need more insulin to control the blood sugars. No. I mean, you can do that. You can give more insulin, and that will bring the blood sugars down, but that's really not the problem. The problem is that the cells of the muscle and the liver are not sensitive to insulin. So what you do is you get them to be sensitive again, and that happens through appropriate exercise and the right diet and avoiding the things that cause inflammation, which are what? Okay? The processed meats, the refined grains, the sugary foods, and the artificial foods. Those are, the, those are among the main categories of foods that promote inflammation. So, um, but in addition to just beta cell, or the cells of the pancreas that just get tired out, in addition to that, we have what's called autoimmune damage. Now, for whatever reason, we don't see a lot of testing in medicine for autoimmunity related to diabetes, even though this is a growing problem. We've known for decades that up to 40, even 60% of people who have everyday forms of diabetes actually have an autoimmune-induced diabetes, where the immune system uh, is it has become activated against insulin or against the pancreas itself or against the, the beta cells in the pancreas that make, that make insulin and so forth. It's autoimmunity is a skyrocketing problem around the world, but it's really kind of off the radar. You know, most thyroid problems are autoimmune. We're now seeing that most diabetes problems are autoimmune. We, we are also learning that uh, the, the government studies, the national nutrition studies that are done on a yearly basis have shown that there is a greater relationship between everyday toxins that, that we're exposed to in our bodies and diabetes risk than there is between being obese and diabetes risk. Did you catch that? See, so many times somebody says, oh, if you should lose weight, all the diabetes will go away. That's really not true. I have a lot of patients who are not overweight who have diabetes. The lady I just described earlier in, in her early 50s who was, was shocked to be diagnosed with prediabetes, she's actually very thin. I'm not saying weight isn't a risk factor. It is. But it's not about the weight. It's about what's happening inside the body. You can actually reverse problems 
um, whether it's blood sugar problems, insulin resistance, in weeks, way before the weight comes off. It's not caused by the weight, it's just associated with the same problem. Um, and, and so what we're learning from these new studies is that exposure to everyday toxins that is magnified when we eat what? Refined foods and animal foods. So those two things right there. Animal products, I, I think one of the, there's, there's two key problems with animal products. Number, uh, number one is the cancers and the disease that they're associated with. So you're actually eating disease. Yeah, we, it's, it's, we don't like to think of it that way. Uh, and and some, for some reason, we don't think of it that way oftentimes, but that's really the main problem. It's not, it's not because of, of the nutrients in it, in my mind. I think the main problem with it is that we're actually taking in disease into our body, cancers. Where do you think most cancers come from? Okay. I've, I had a black Labrador retriever that died of melanoma, and he was an indoor dog. Where do you get melanoma? His diet. And, and I, I was totally oblivious to it until I started, I, I thought one day, I said, wait a minute, he's a black Labrador retriever, and he got melanoma on his underside, and he's an indoor dog. Where do you get a melanoma? So I, start, I actually started doing some research, and I found out that the, you know, the deadliest melanomas aren't caused by sun exposure, caused by diet. And lack of vitamin D. Lack, lack of sunlight actually is more likely to promote melanoma, which is a shocker to many people. Um, so, so the, the key here is understanding that when we're consuming animal products, we're taking in disease first, and secondarily, we're taking in toxins that otherwise we would have never got, uh, brought into our body. Why are there so many toxins in animal products? Because eating animal products is eating high on the food chain, right? Okay, so the, when we eat animal products, we're consuming an animal that has eaten a whole bunch of maybe other animals or fish or whatever. And, and so they have biomagnified and bioconcentrated all the toxins that it ever consumed, because a lot of these, most of these are fat soluble, right? So all those toxins that it ever consumed, we consume in one sitting. That's a lot of toxins. To the other problem is that many times, not only are animals just exposed to toxins because we're all exposed to toxins, but they're actually being fed toxins so they'll grow faster. Now, if, you, if you've never heard this, it might sound like, no, I don't believe that. Check it out for yourself. Most chickens, you know, clean meat, most commercially grown chickens are fed arsenic. Arsenic. 
Hmm. Let me think. Could this have anything to do with the exploding rate of Alzheimer's? I think so. Okay. Could this have anything to do with the exploding rate of other neurologic disease? I think so. Arsenic is a well-established neurotoxin. Right? No question. Now, why would somebody feed chicken arsenic? The same reason they, they pump antibiotics in, in animals. So they don't get sick, and so they don't have stunted growth. Get them fat as quick as possible, and then off goes the head, right? And they get them to market as soon as possible. Arsenic is, a, is an antibiotic, okay? Or otherwise known as an anti-life substance. It kills anything that it's in contact to, but it doesn't stay in the chicken long enough to kill them. But nobody is raising us for food, fortunately, and so we get to live long enough to experience the neurologic damage of that. So, so those are the two key issues that drive disease. Uh, disease in the form of cancers and other forms of disease that actually can be transferred from animal to human. Uh, and then the toxins that are in large part transferred from animal to human uh, when consumed in the diet. So that is the prescription for causing autoimmune disease. Okay, if, I, if, I wanted to if I wanted to figure out a way to cause autoimmune disease, that's what I would do. I would eat lots of refined grains that are full of more toxins and don't have enough nutrients to support the body's inherent healing system, and I would consume lots of animal products, preferably commercially grown, so that they're going to be fed things that are, are, are cause them to grow quickly. Um, In diabetes, there is, there is a, a new form of diabetes called uh, latent autoimmune diabetes that is essentially an, a, a, a primarily driven autoimmune disease. Yeah, you hardly ever hear about it. And yet it's a very much more common problem. And subtly is influencing all other forms of disease. So how do, we, how do we address autoimmunity? How do we address these problems? Okay. If we are vigilant to remove the offending elements and then, and then bring in the actual substances that the body is designed to help it heal, the building blocks of the body, that's the prescription for reversing that tendency. I've had the opportunity to see people with severe autoimmune disease reverse it once they made those choices, once they got aggressive about removing the toxic elements and dramatically enhancing the nutritional profile, which meant they were com largely consuming a plant-based diet and they were digesting it properly. We don't have time to get into that in this series. But, but let, me, let me just make a plug in it right now uh, so that you understand the, the critical nature of this. If you're not digesting your food well, you're going to get disease. 
Okay? It's, it's probably the, the, the simplest shortcut towards getting disease is to have a constitution that is not digesting food well. In our society, we treat uh, poor digestion as an inconvenience and as something that can be easily treated by taking an antacid or some type of acid blocker. And you know, that's one of the worst things you could do for it. It, it, it feels like it works because the symptoms go away, but it actually makes the disease causing process far worse when, when that is done. And that's such an important issue that after finally recognizing this after years of practice, I, I saw such a dramatic improvement in patients once we started improving their digestion that every single clinical series, the 10-week clinical series that I do in diabetes and optimal brain wellness, where their patients are getting two hours every week for 10 weeks of instruction and guidance relative to all the strategies that they can incorporate into a comprehensive healing model that I had a whole two-hour session just on digestion. That's how critical that is. And interestingly enough, it is actually one of the things that Ellen White really focuses on in her writings. Pay attention to that. I actually recently did a, a search from the Ellen G. White Estate database right, just right, using my phone. I came out with, with about 20 pages of references that talking about the, the relationship between digestion and health. And we, we see it in, in the world all around us, in poems and in, in music, and that, that what happens with our digestion influences our what? Our mood, our attitude, and that's not just a coincidence. It influences everything. And so if having a poor digestion literally is many times a weak link that divides us between being in a healing mode and being in a progressive disease mode. So, so pay attention to that. And, and sometimes that has to be evaluated very carefully by a clinician. Um, and and the, the first steps, of course, make sure you're what? Make sure you're chewing your food well. You know, your, our moms told us that, and we kind of get away from it, and we're in so much a hurry, we just woof down the food. We don't realize that if you didn't chew that food initially, what's the chances of the rest of your body breaking that down properly? Um, and, and, then, and then the last part I'll say about digestion, probably one of the most critical factors is timing of meals. Do you know, do you know uh, what's the best way to gain weight? If you want to be a sumo wrestler, do you know how they, how they gain weight? Start the day with a really big breakfast, right? No, they don't eat breakfast. They don't eat any breakfast. In fact, they don't eat nothing until about noon when they eat a big lunch, lots of rice. Then they have their workouts. And then in the evening, they go to McDonald's and they just gorge themselves. They just eat lots of food. Next morning, you wake up, no food until lunch. 
So if you want to gain weight and you want to have really bad digestion, follow that approach. Okay? If you want to lose weight or improve your health, improve your digestion, you reverse that. Okay? You eat a really healthy, larger breakfast, a good-sized lunch, and a very light dinner, if at all. That can, that can improve all kinds of problems. All right, how are we doing on time, Pastor? We... Okay, <laughs> all right. Um, so let me make a few comments then with regards to uh, the relationship with the adrenal glands. And by the way, I'm going to be finishing this lecture tomorrow, first thing afternoon. I, as talking with some of you, I realized that, that um, we're, we're not even halfway done with this one, so I want to make sure I get through it. I think this is a really important, a important topic since it in, really impacts everybody. And I will also share uh, some ideas about the immune system as I have been already. So I'll still cover the topic, but I'll continue this same. So keep, this, keep the handout for tomorrow, uh, first session in the afternoon. So adrenal dysfunction, how does that relate to blood sugar imbalances? Remember the first case study I shared with you with the 50-year-old lady who was having headaches? Not only was she having high blood sugars right after meals, but she was having really low blood sugars three to four hours after meals. Low blood sugars depressed the immune system. Back in the mid-40s, researchers re were studying polio. And, and as they studied polio with animals, they were infecting animals with the polio virus to get them to come down with polio so then they could experiment with different treatments. But they couldn't actually get these animals to get polio, even though they were inoculating them with the polio virus. They wouldn't get polio until they figure out a way to lower their blood sugars, then they would catch polio. So when the blood sugars drop below, below, basically below 80 to 90, where it should be stable after meals, two to three, four hours after meals, that drop in blood sugar actually is associated with a depressed immunity. You see, the blood sugar should never drop low. God created into our bodies a fail-safe mechanism whereby as the body needs more sugar, as the brain needs more sugar, the, the adrenal glands will monitor the blood sugar level, and as the sugar starts to drop below optimal, it releases a little bit more cortisol, the adrenal hormone cortisol, which is commonly the, uh, called the stress hormone. See, the cortisol then goes to the liver and tells the liver to release a little bit of sugar. So the liver will hold two to three pounds of sugar in it as an emergency storage. So we should never run out of sugar. Our blood sugar should always be stable. Even, for, even with weeks of no food, blood sugar should be stable. So why does it drop? The main reason is because the adrenals are not healthy. The adrenals are fatigued. They're dysfunctional. 
And we frequently hear about high cortisol levels and stress and that high cortisol levels are affiliated with, with disease. But actually, low cortisol levels are even worse. So we want to have a tight balance with cortisol. We don't want it to be too low. We don't want it to be too high. We actually monitor the cortisol levels when we do the blood sugar testing. And more often than not, people have too little cortisol rather than too much. You know why? Because we all live in such a stressful life, fast-paced life, that we're burning out our adrenal glands. Now, the thought I want to leave you with here is that when we're constantly stressing the system and forcing the adrenal glands to produce more cortisol, after a while, the adrenal glands start to break down. But 75% of the time, that adrenal gland breakdown is related to an autoimmune process, the immune system has now been activated against itself. Okay, which brings us back full circle. So in order to have a healthy pancreas, in order to have a healthy adrenal gland, in order to have uh, uh, blood sugars that are stable both right after a meal so it doesn't go too high, and stable two to three, four hours after the meal so it doesn't drop too low, in order to get that, we have to look at the big picture. We have to take advantage of all the strategies that benefit us. And that is what we're going to be looking at in more detail tomorrow afternoon. What are the lifestyle intervention strategies that can help us effectively prevent all these problems associated with prediabetes, diabetes, and adrenal fatigue, low blood sugars? Let's end with a word of prayer. Father, we, we thank you that um, you have not only given us the scriptures and the pen of inspiration, but you've also given us the book of nature. You've given us the opportunity to study your handiworks in science. And we are so impressed, Lord, how the most recent uh, studies have continue to vindicate and, and show the, the inerrant ways of your inspiration. That was your words that have been written down for so many decades. And I just pray, Lord, that you will encourage each one of us to take the time to seek your will, to seek your path of healing in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.